We've been learning about prevailing prayer, and of course our key scripture is over in James chapter 5. You can turn there if you want. We won't stay there long. He says in verse 13, is there any among of you suffering? Let him pray. Let him, uh, if anyone cheerful, let him sing psalms. Anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. Not the oil, but the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Verse 16 is kind of recalling what he's just said in verses 13 through 15, because he's talking about talking to God. Therefore, confess your trespasses or your faults to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And this is the part that we're looking at. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much. We're looking at this from the point of view that, that the Bible makes clear to us that our God fully intends, fully expects, and fully needs our prayers to accomplish much. And I'm concerned because I believe that so much of the church in the United States and I know in my own life, and as I shared with you before, my own testimony of how this subject opened up to me was right over here somewhere one morning praying in here, and I was praying over certain situations, and I was calling out to God to handle, to deal with it for healing in this situation. And the Lord, here's a way of while you're talking to Him, He'll talk back to you. Am I the only one He ever does that to? And He said, He said, you don't believe, I'm, you don't believe that I'm going to do that. You're not expecting First of all, he says, you're not expecting much because you're not believing much. And of course, you don't argue with God because he's always right. And I just stopped in my tracks because he had me. I knew he was right. And what I've learned to do when God does that is God is always doing that because he doesn't just want to bring correction. He wants to bring wholeness. He wants to point something out in our life that he wants to change or work in our life. So when I see something like that, I go to, all right, God, you're... That's exactly right. Um, what do I do? And that's when the Lord began to open me up to this subject. He says, the problem is, and he said, it's not just you, it's so much of the church. We're not, we're not expecting to see results when we pray. So as a result, we pray for a number of reasons. We talked about that in the beginning. We either pray because we're trying to fulfill some obligation because we know we're supposed to pray. Just instinctively, we know we're supposed to pray. We've all heard teachings about how much we're supposed to pray. Many of us have had guilt trips laid on us of how much we're supposed to pray. And as a pastor, I've got even more of that because all the teaching I have about pastoring is how much time you're supposed to spend in prayer so that you can do what you're supposed to do. And I've shared with you, I, it was easier for me to pray when I was on the job when I was a lawyer than it has been since I've been a pastor here. And so, because there's just so much things to do, and, and yet... And all that guilt way, and have you ever noticed the more the guiltier you feel about something, the less inclined you are to do it? The more guilty you are that you need to be praying more, it doesn't cause you to pray more. You end up praying, oh, you may for a little while, but you'll end up praying less. And God doesn't lead us through guilt. He corrects us, but He corrects us because then He wants to inspire us how to bring change. And really the whole purpose of this series on prevailing prayer is just to stir in us a desire, a desire, because it starts with a desire to, to see our prayers answered. Because we're going to learn as we get toward a little further into this series that, that it, God, in many ways, in most cases, can't move unless somebody prays. So God needs us to pray. 
And he doesn't need us to pray out of obligation. He needs us to pray effectual prayers that will accomplish much. We've already learned that the, that the, that the, that the holdback isn't on God's end. It's not that we pray, we've got to pray just the right way, with just the right fervency, with just the right purpose, and just the right position, and do just the right things. And when we, God checks off, you did this right, you did this right, you did this right, okay, now I've got to give it to Him. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. God's already given it. He's willing. He's the one imploring us, pleading with us, entreating us, come ask of me. Why? Because I want to do it. So if, if God wants to do it, and we're asking and we're not seeing results, something's wrong. And the problem is we've learned to accept and be comfortable and satisfied with precious little results or precious few results. And so we'd be very subtly inside adopt this attitude, well, I'm not expecting much, so, you know, I'm going to go through the motions. And, and that's what so much of the church is. And the proof of it is the attendance when we have a prayer meeting. Because it's not like as if nobody has any needs. And if, you have, if, we, you know, if I have no needs, it's not as if there aren't other people that I know that don't have needs. So the reason this place isn't filled on Tuesday nights, now I know people work, I know their situations, but the reason this place isn't filled, but there's more people in this church than you can fit in this room. The reason this place isn't filled on Tuesday nights primarily is because people really don't believe that God's going to answer our prayers. Really don't believe. So the real purpose for this series is to inspire us to begin to expect my prayers ought to get answered. My prayers ought to get answered. So we began to look at this and we saw that the words effectual fervent is one word in Greek, energeo. It comes from the word, Greek word energeo, which doesn't mean spitting loud, jumping up and down, getting flush in the face. What it means is not talking about how we pray at all. It's talking about prayer itself because the word means prayer that's producing something. And so what this is saying, what James is saying is our prayers when they meet the requirements that we're talking about, they are at work producing something. And of course, the problem is we don't see that what results right away in many cases. And because we don't see the results right away in many cases, we assume they're not working, and so we back off and think, well, it's not working. And yet we're beginning to look at the idea that the Bible teaches us that God is at work the moment you pray. The moment you pray. So I've got to put my timer on here. I'll, I may go over time, and we wouldn't want that. So, all right, okay. So now what we've been looking at, we've looked at the fact that, um, uh, that there are conditions to prayer, not rules, principles, because rules are things that if you don't, if you don't meet the rules or the conditions, then what happens is it's earning something. We've talked about one of the big mistakes and attitude about prayer Jesus teaches in John, Matthew chapter 6. He says, the Gentiles believe that they're going to be heard because of how they pray. Don't do that. Don't be like them. Don't you know that your Father knows what you need before you pray? And we started out looking at the foundation of confidence. The foundation for answered prayer is realizing we're talking to our Father. We're communicating with God out of a relationship with Him. 
We're not talking to a God who's distant up in heaven behind some cloud, behind some curtain like the Wizard of Oz, and we've got to go through all those steps to get an audience with him in order to get him to possibly, hopefully, maybe someday answer my request. No, he's our Father who's telling us to come to him. And Jesus is saying, the Gentiles can't do that because he's not their father. So they have no other basis to come to God other than how they pray. But we're coming out of a relationship with a God who loves us, who's proven and demonstrated his love towards us, and wants to ask, meet our needs, is telling us to come and asking him. And so that's the beginning of it. But there are some things the Bible says that are principles of prayer. They're not... They're not conditions that you've got to meet. They're principles, just like, just like electricity operates on certain principles, just like gravity operates on certain principles. Certain laws of nature operate on certain principles. So when you do the right thing, it's not that you've earned, you've not earned the right for the toaster to heat your toast. You plugged it in. So that's not a law. It's not you're earning something by plugging the toaster in. You're operating a principle by which electricity works. That it doesn't flow through the air. It must flow through the wires that are in that cord that you plug in. Understand that? And that's a very important difference because, because we're so performance-oriented, we're so law-oriented, that the moment we begin to get in things, well, this is what you've got to do, we begin to turn it into a law. Well, I've got to do those things, and that pressure then comes on us. The reliance comes on me. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? And the teaching on faith that's come out in the 80s and the 90s, as wonderful it is, and I went, the school I went to was founded on that, there was a very subtle message communicated with it, which was basically it's all relies on me. I got to say the right thing. I got to believe the right thing. And those things are principles, but we've turned them into a law. So the focus is what am I doing? So if it's not working, I got to do it harder. And, and it's just like, you know, the harder you try to do it, the less you're doing it out of, the less that's faith. And we're going to see that tonight. We may get that tonight, maybe next week. All right. So that's kind of where we've come. And the first principle we've been looking at is right in this book. It's over in chapter 1. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So he's talking about asking God for something you lack. Who gives to all liberally. There are all. We're learning something about God. He gives to how many? All, not just the select few, not just the pastor, not just the goody two-shoes. He gives to all, how? Liberally. God's not holding, God's not using an eyedropper. And he gives it without reproach. He won't laugh at you for what, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There's no such thing as asking God for something dumb. Because everything, when you compare us to God, Every question's stupid. Because <laughs> none of us are smart compared to Him. Everything we do is stupid and folly compared to Him. But God doesn't do that in terms of that because He loves you. You're His child. Gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to Him. Ah, oh, but there's a condition. Not a condition, excuse me, a principle. But let Him ask in faith with no doubting. And what we saw before is that the, the reason it has to be in faith 
It's not that faith is a requirement that God checks off and says, no, you see, you weren't in faith enough. The reason you didn't get it is you didn't believe enough. You didn't meet the, the, the faith meter. Didn't quite get high enough. And it's got to get up to this point before I, I give it to you. That's how we tend to think. But if you understand this, if God's already given us, if God in the spirit realm, the God in heaven where he lives, has already made provision for it, then what's the problem? How come we don't have it yet? Because the other side of the transaction is we have to receive it. When there's a gift given at Christmas time, if you give gifts to your family, your spouse, your relatives, your children, there's two parts to it. In fact, legally, in order for a legal gift to be accomplished, there are two sides to it. The giver has to have what's called donative intent. Is that right, Richard? Is that right, Jerry? Okay. I'm going back a long way. The giver has to give it and mean to give it. Not just, oh, I forgot it and left it there by accident and you picked it up. That's not a gift. But the gift also has to be received in order for the gift to be a completed transaction. So listen carefully. It has to be given by the one who has it, but that doesn't complete it. Then it has to be received by the one to whom it's given. What we're learning is God in the covenant that He entered into you with Christ gave from His side all things. It's like a, it's like, it's like a, a buffet table and He's put it all on the table. It's already there. So if it's already there, you don't have to earn it being there, it has already been put there. But that doesn't complete the transaction because it's not going to be benefiting you or me until you and I receive it. But we won't receive it until we believe, until we believe, number one, that it's there because you can't see it. And number two, that it belongs to me. Hebrews chapter 11. This isn't in my notes. This is just where we're going to go tonight. Hebrews chapter 11, which is all about faith and how faith operates. But without faith... It's impossible to please Him, God. Why? Why? For whoever come, in order to come to God, we must believe two things. Number one, that He is. So here faith is being used in order to simply receive the presence of God, in order to come into the presence of God, the writer of Hebrews is saying there's two things. There's, faith is required because in order to come into the presence of God, you, in order to do that, because God's there, but in order for you to come into His presence and receive His presence, you have to believe two things. The first thing is you have to believe He exists. You have to believe that He is. That's so simple we just run over it. But you will not receive something you don't believe exists. 
Everyone understand that? So if you don't, if, if, if you, if somebody that you're at work with is an atheist, there's no way they can come to God. Because an atheist, by definition, doesn't believe God exists. So there's no way he can come to God, even though God wants him to come, because he doesn't believe God's there, so he won't come. So that also translates into receiving what God has provided for us, because the first thing is, if you don't believe it's there, you won't ask for it. How would you expect to receive something that you don't even believe is there? Following me? But the second thing is, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him or diligently seek him. In other words, that he will give you what you've asked for. So the second thing we have to believe is not only that what God's provided is already there, but the second thing we have to believe we have a right to it. Because you won't take something you don't believe you have a right to. Because you're not thieves, are you? Are you? Are you? I'm trying to help you out a little bit. You're not thieves, are you? Okay, all right, okay. Because this is going to be on tape, CD. You know, people listen. So I was there that night, and I didn't hear you saying you weren't a thief. All right, okay, just trying to help you out. Okay. So, I'm going through this so that you can realize that faith is not a requirement of God that we have to have enough faith to earn it from Him. Faith is a principle like plugging the toaster in. If you don't... Okay, it's funny, we got to... We, we put a, got a new coffee maker, and I set it up, and I was, went out yesterday morning, was it? I went out there because I was all right, you know, the, get a nice, good, strong cup of coffee, and I pressed the button. It had some neat dials on it, which I like things like that. You know, I'm male. You know, I pressed the button. It's like, wow, you know. And Anita's complaining about the other one. Is, you know, she thought it seems to be taking, too, taking longer to do it. So I so, said, this is going to be fast, and I, nothing's happening. So I hit it again nothing's happening. So I open up the instruction manual to the troubleshooting section. And this is the first thing it says. You know, troubleshooting section, it says, if you have this symptom, then check these. They're written by brilliant engineers. The first thing is, if it's not working, see if it's plugged in. I'd already done that. They paid somebody, I don't know matter how many thousands of dollars to figure out <laughs> And the next thing was make sure you'd put water in it. The next thing was make sure you put coffee in it. How many how much do they pay people to come up with these troubleshooting suggestions? Anyway. But they don't put that in there because it's some law that this little instruction manual has come up with, it's a simple basic principle that because it is an electric coffee maker, it needs electricity to run and therefore it needs to be plugged into the outlet so that the electricity can flow into it. In the same way, faith is the conduit by which you receive something into this realm from the other realm in which it already existed. Another example. Go over to, to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8. Now listen carefully. For by grace...
you have been saved. When Jesus went to the cross, your salvation was paid for. It was done. Jesus said, it is finished. It was paid for. Your salvation, the payment for your sins, the righteousness that God had prepared for you was paid for and waiting on the table for you before you were ever born. In the moment Christ became real to you and your need for Him, and the moment you called out to Him by whatever little bit of faith it may have been, at that point you received the grace that had already been given to you. Because notice the wording here. We're not saved by faith, we're saved by grace. Grace is the gift that God has given us of our salvation. But you were saved by grace, you're saved by grace through faith. You see that? So that grace of your salvation is received through faith. Why faith? Because if we went back to Hebrews 11.1, we would see faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And all that God has provided for you already exists in heaven, in the spirit realm, and that is a realm into which you cannot see with your natural eyes. You cannot hear with your natural ears. Your hands cannot reach up there and touch it and feel, oh, that thing I need is there already for me. Now I know I can receive it. You can't reach into the spirit realm with your five senses and touch them to verify that they're there. Just like all of a sudden, we were going somewhere the other day, and I, oh my goodness, did I, ring, did I bring my wallet? What's the first thing you do when you think, did you bring my wallet? I reach back here to touch it. Why? Because my sense of touch confirms to me that it's there. So now I fully believe and have confidence that I didn't forget my wallet and I have it with me. Okay? And it's my touch, the sense of touch, that confirms to me that it's there. But when God says, I I provide all your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus, I can't reach with my finger into His wallet and touch and see that my provision is there. Because what gave me assurance and confidence that my wallet was there is that I could touch it. My senses confirmed that, either by seeing it or by physically touching it. So that gives me an assurance. The substance of this wallet in my back pocket gives me an assurance that it's there and, of course, that it's mine. It's not somebody else's wallet. But I can't reach into heaven into God's back pocket, I can't reach onto this great table and touch my provision or see my provision to give me that same assurance that is there. So I need something else that can give me that same degree of assurance so that I'll receive it, that it's there and that I'm entitled to it, that it's mine. I need something else to substitute for the fact that I can't with my natural senses verify it and faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen because what faith does is gives me enough confidence to believe that it's there and that it's mine that I can receive it even though I can't see it 
Everybody follow me? I'm going through all of that because when we see that in order to have our prayers answered, we have to believe that we have to believe that God's going to do it. It's not some rule or law or requirement. It's a principle of the operation of how things are transferred by very nature from the spirit realm where they can't be seen into the natural realm where we need it. The only way down here is through the conduit of faith because faith is what allows me to have enough confidence that it's there and it's mine that I can take my hands out and receive it. Okay? All right. So that's why we went through all that. And so back, James says that, that we are to ask. God will give us generously. However, we must ask in faith. And then he says the other part of that with no doubting. And we've talked about doubting is a word, diacrino, which means to be of two minds about the same thing. And we're of two minds about it, that we saw that we're of two minds about something because we're, we're deciding what we believe based on our senses. So we come to church, we hear a message on faith, we've been believing God for something, we leave here confident that what I've asked for, God's doing. We wake up tomorrow, we don't feel the confidence because we haven't been hearing it all night. We look at our body or we look at the checkbook or we look at the mail or we go online or whatever it is to check out whether it's there or not. We don't see it's there. Our confidence begins to fade and now we come over here and we begin to say, well, I guess it's not so. Now, we wouldn't, may not quite come out and say that because we know better, but inwardly we kind of give up. And then we come back to church or we hear a CD or see somebody on TV and we get our confidence built back up and so we're back over here believing and we've all been here. And then that fades away and the next thing you know we're over here and that's double-minded. That's double-minded. And James says, not, let not that man think he'll receive. Let not that man think he'll what? Receive. Let not that man think he'll receive. Faith is receiving something that's already given. Let not that man think he'll receive anything. Uh, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We don't stand still long enough to receive. Ephesians chapter five or four, chapter 6, uh, somewhere around verse 13, 11 or 12, it says, And having done all to stand, stand, not wobble, stand. Okay. Then we went over to, um, to Mark chapter 11, which is the other kind of side of this. And I know this is review, but I need it. You can't hear too much faith. Mark 11, verse... This is a story, of course, of the fig tree that Jesus cursed. Now, I'm not going to go through all that again. But verse 22 is the key to all of this. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith... In God, Because essentially, not essentially, what Jesus is doing here is he's cursed the fig tree. He didn't spit and yell and jump up and down and get flesh in the face. He just said, let no man eat fruit thereof again. And, and the next day they walk past and it's dried up from the roots. It's dead from the roots. And Peter stops and marvels at that. And now Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity to teach them 
what he just did. Now, why would he do that if he didn't want them to do it? And why is it in here if he doesn't want us to do it? Otherwise, we're just reading of some historical event. And here's the key. The first thing Jesus says is have faith in God. And so many Christians that are struggling in receiving things is because they're trying to have faith in, them, their, own, in their faith. So their problem, I don't believe enough. I'm not doing this enough. That's learning to have faith in me. And that's not what Jesus says to do. He says have faith in God and what God is like. And then he goes on to say, For I surely I say unto you, that whoever says unto this mountain, Be removed, ca- taken up, and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, does not doubt in his heart, does not doubt in his heart, does not doubt in his heart. You have two places where you can believe. And therefore you have two places where you can doubt. You can believe in your mind, and you can doubt in your mind. You can also believe in your heart, and you can doubt in your heart. Now, here's what's strange, but it's true. You can believe in your head and doubt in your heart. That's where many Christians are. That's why it doesn't work for so many Christians, because they're believing with their mind, but they don't believe yet with their heart. On the other hand, you can be believing in your heart and have all kinds of doubts in your head. You can have peace in your heart and confusion in your mind. I've been in crises where my mind's just running in circles and I got peace in here. Just let my mind run because I got peace in here. Because this is the part of you where God lives. This is where the kingdom of God is. But we were looking here, the foundation of this, and this is what we've been studying over the last, last time we were together on this subject, is have faith in God. Well, what about God? Have faith in the way he looks? Have faith in the way he talks? Obviously not. It's faith in his character. And we went over and we looked in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14, uh, verses um, uh, 23 and 24. 1 John, let's go there. 1 John. Chapter 5. Almost all the way at the end. Fourteen. Now, I just said, have faith in God. All right? John's going to tell us what our faith is based on. Because faith always has to be based on something. There's no such thing as blind faith. Faith Faith is believing something. So you ought to be able to identify what it is you're believing. Well, I'm in faith. What's that mean? That's like just walking around saying, I'm in love. With whom? I'm just in love. Well, that's good. With whom? I'm just in love. You can't just be in love. You've got to be in love. You've got to love someone or something. There has to be an object to that love. In the same way, faith has to be in something because faith is believing something's true. Well, what is it you're believing is true? What is it you're believing? And this is what we're to believe about God. This is what God tells us about Himself that is the basis of why we should have faith in Him. What is it about God we're to have faith in? This is an insight into God's character. This is the confidence that we have towards Him. 
that if we ask him anything that's in accordance with his will, that means within the scope or the spectrum of his will. God doesn't have a particular will about particular individual things. There's a breadth to God's will. And if you have any confusion about what it is, he gave you a book that's sitting in your lap right now or your electronic device that tells you what his will is. And it covers almost everything. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask, if we ask, if we ask anything that's within the scope of that will, what? He hears us. So he's listening. Always. But isn't that what Jesus said? Don't you know your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask? Why would he tell us over and over again to ask if he's not listening? See, we have to renew our mind to who he is and what he's like. That if we ask anything that's in accordance with his will, he immediately hears you. And we know more than that. Verse 15. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, that we have already now the petition that we've asked him. Why? Because he's just waiting for you to ask. So when you ask, he doesn't go into this pondering mode. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. I don't know whether I ought to do that for them or not. I mean, wow. Let me think about that for a while. I drive our staff up a tree because they'll come and ask me something. I say, well, I want to I just consider that. And they'll kind of look at me, but see, then I got the ultimate responsibility. And I'll do, I'll mull things. Now, some things I'll make immediate decisions on, but things that don't need them, some of them I'll just mull around until I get a sense of what is right. God doesn't have to do that. God's already decided before you ask that he wants to give it to you. And John had an insight into this. He says, we we know this about him, that if he hears it, we already have the request in whatever it is that we've made known to him. Wow. That's worth meditating on, to renew your mind to what he's like. And there are other scriptures that kind of back that up. I want to look at... So there's two things we need to know about God in order to have faith when we come to Him that He's going to hear us and answer our prayers. There's two things we've got to know about Him. Let's go to um, um, Matthew chapter 8. You learning anything? Matthew chapter 8. I know some of, a lot of this is review, but I need to hear it again. I said that before. Jesus has been up on the mountain teaching the laying out the principles of the kingdom of heaven, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. And now he comes down. Verse 1. And when he come down, came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came worshiping, saying, Lord... Now he's going to pray. He's going to ask Jesus for something. Notice he says two things. If you are willing, you can make me clean. He's identifying the two key things that we must know about God in any situation we bring to Him. Number one, is He willing to do it? And number two, can He do it? 
Because if you don't have both of those, we have no basis for confidence. If we're convinced God can do it, but we don't know for sure he's willing, then we won't have confidence to ask him. On the other hand, we can just say, hey, God wants to do anything, but you know, I don't know that he can handle this one. And you may laugh, yeah, but he's God. Well, we've, we're going to look at ourselves, and if, maybe not tonight, probably next week. We're going we're gonna to find, there's a key the Bible gets to looking inside your heart to find out what you believe. And we'll, we'll get there probably next week. But we're looking at this. There's two key things we learn from this leper who's come to Jesus and said, look, one of these I'm confident about, the other I'm not so sure. I'm confident that you can do, heal me. I just don't know for sure that you're willing to hear me. I was listening to a teacher the other day saying, well, we all, you know, all of us believe God can do it. And I'm saying, I'm not so sure of that. I'm not so sure of that. I'm not so sure. There's a, there was a man that came to, to Jesus when he came, came down off the Mount of Transfiguration, when he and Peter and James and John were up there and they saw Elijah and Moses up there. And they come down off the mountain and as they come down, there's this commotion down there. And what it is, you've got a father whose son is demoniac. And this demons and this son are throwing him into the fire, throwing him all over the place. And the father comes desperately up to Jesus and said, look, I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. And because and, I'm bringing him to you, basically. Now, right there is a lesson. Because so many people out there will tell you, well, I know it's not God's will to always heal because I know of situations where somebody went and prayed for something and they didn't get it. Therefore, it's not always God's answer to he, will to heal. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot discern what God is like by human beings' responses to him. You can't prove anything about God from the fact that a prayer wasn't answered. And here's a great example. Because if that's true, then Jesus should have concluded, well, I guess it's not the Father's will to heal him. Because my nine my disciples, two-thirds of my team prayed for him, and God said no. So I guess it's obviously, do I bring him to me? Because he's already said no. That's not what Jesus said. He said, bring him to me. And Jesus' answer is interesting. Jesus' answer, Jesus basically says to him, he says, you know, it's because you didn't, because they didn't believe. Because Jesus says, all things are possible. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, to him who believes. What Jesus did is he turned it back on the Father and said, I can do anything if you'll believe. I can do anything if you'll believe. And I love the Father's response. It's just so honest. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, God will work with you where you are. So here's a man who wasn't believing. He didn't really believe this was going to happen. And he came to Jesus, and Jesus met him where he was and helped his unbelief. But the thing Jesus had to explain to him is all things are possible. This is in red in my Bible. So it's Jesus' words. Jesus says, all things, all things are possible to him who believes. 
So we're going to look first of all at, we're looking at, at God's, God's willingness. The leper said, I know you can, but I don't know if you're willing to. And Jesus' answer to him is, I'm willing. And the scriptures we're looking at are addressing this question of, is God willing? Well, if he's told us to come and ask, he must be willing. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And then he gets into this variation we can have. What man among you What man among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your fathers in heaven give good things to him who asks? In other words, here's something else about my father. Not only has he told us to come and ask, we can trust him that when he asks, he's not going to play games with us about what we ask. He's not going to say, well, I know you asked for this, but I want you to settle for this. I know there are people out there that teach that, but that's not what Jesus addresses this issue. And he says, if you're good enough, and compared to God, you're evil, to not do that because you care about your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who asked? Say, well, what if what I'm asking, and I'm getting ahead because we'll talk about this down the road, what if what I'm asking isn't good for me? Then why would you ask? Why would you ask for something you're not sure is good for you? Well, God might know what's better. Well, you know, (laughs) most of us have enough common sense to have some idea between what's good and what's not. Because he's at least attributing this to good to fathers that he considers evil compared to God, at least they know the difference between what's good and bad to give their kids. See, if you don't have confidence that what he's going to do, what you're going to ask, you won't, have, you won't really expect him to do it. And that's where we miss it so often. We'll ask, but we don't really in our heart expect it to happen. Because when you really expect it to happen, you won't quit. Because you know it's done. In fact, when you really expect it to happen, and I'm really getting ahead of myself here, you rest because you don't need to see it. Because you know in here, it's done. All right. We looked last time at at, um, uh, uh, Matthew 23, excuse me, Numbers 23, uh, 19, God's not a man that he should lie or the Son of Man, that he should repent. It says also in, in um, Malachi that God cannot lie. We looked at John 17, 17, where God, the reason God can't lie is truth is his word. I want to look at one more in this line about that you can trust that God means what he says and says what he means. Isaiah chapter 55. I found lately I've been forgetting about this verse. It's so powerful. 
Verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the, he- high, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Notice they're higher. Notice they're higher. Not worse, they're higher. His thoughts are better than our thoughts. And, and in, uh, elsewhere, he says, he says, one of the things God gets upset at is when we call good evil and evil good. But we find there are people that do that about God. They take things that are evil in our life and say, well, God must have that for some good. So they're calling evil good and good evil about God. Moving right along. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return there, but it waters the earth and makes it bring forth fruit and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So he's saying just as the rain comes down from heaven, and the snow comes down, and boy, we've just had a good example of that lately, where the rains come down, and the rains come down, and the rains come down, and the rains come down. But that rain has to do that so that in a few weeks, we'll begin to see the grass turn green, and the flowers begin to come up, because the rain that comes down will produce what it came down to produce. And it came down to germinate the seeds. It came down to revitalize those bulbs that have been dormant all winter, that come to revitalize the grass. The rain came down with a purpose. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Just as the rain comes down and it will accomplish its purpose. Verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me void or empty, but it shall, it shall accomplish what I please or what I sent it to do, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Which is why it's so important to be praying God's Word over situations. Because first of all, if you're praying God's Word, you know it's His will. And secondly, if you're praying God's Word, all the authority and power of that Word is now coming out of your mouth into that situation. And see, the difference between God's Word and your Word and my Word is God's Word contains in itself the power to produce what His Word says. I've told you this before. When you and I say words, we're predicting what's going to happen. So if I say, you know, if I say something's going to happen, I'm giving you my opinion of whether it's going to happen or not, but my words don't make it happen. God's words, because He is the source of power, He is the creator, He has absolute power, God's words within them create what He says. All of creation... Everything God has ever created instantly obeys Him. That's why when Jesus spoke to the storm, it didn't argue with Him. It stopped. Why? Because it was the Word of the Creator that spoke that. The only thing God's ever created that does not instantly obey everything He says is you and me. Because He gave us something He didn't give anything else in creation, and that's a free will. We are made in His image, and the thing that makes us in His image as much as anything else is the power to decide for ourselves. But what I want you to see is the Word. You can trust God's Word to God to do what He said He's going to do because He can't do otherwise. Because the power to produce what He said 
is in the word that he said. We can trust his character because he, he is love. He is goodness. He, he is, this is all his idea. And the real issue is, in most cases, is we really don't fully trust his character. We don't trust him. And we, get, we need to get honest with ourselves about that. And stop putting up this image, well, I'm a faith person, because I'm going to get into next week the proof of what, how, what kind of faith people we really are. Because again, the Bible gives us an insight in there. Not to condemn us, but to recognize where we are so we know where the problem is. In most of our cases, the, the, the toaster plug is not in the outlet. It's laying somewhere near it. But it's not plugged in. Because if you plug it into that outlet, when I plugged it into the outlet, the lights on the coffee maker came up. And it did work. But I kept on plugging and plugging and plugging and plugging it in. I had to leave it plugged in. That's another lesson. Oh, that'll preach too. I had to leave it plugged in and then wait because I was expect. I don't know why I was expecting this thing to instantly produce coffee. And when I walked away, oh, this is not going to wait till next week. I got 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 to wait till next week. Don't let me forget the coffee example though. I got to I got to wait till next week. I got to wait till next week. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you know where we are. Thank you, Father, that you know. Thank you that you've given us everything. Your word is filled with promises that you've held nothing back. We read just now that you give to all liberally without reproach. You say in Ephesians that you'll do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. You said in the beginning of Ephesians in chapter 1 that you've lavished upon us your grace. You are generous. You've held nothing back. Romans 8, you said that if you spared not your own son, but you delivered him up for us all, why would you not freely also give us all things else that you have? And so we come to you tonight, Father, very much like that Father that came to our Lord with his Son. And you're telling us that all things are possible to him who believes. And our response tonight is, we believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. You're calling us to be a people of prayer with confidence that when we pray, our prayers are answered. We thank you, Father, that you're, what, what you lead us to, you will enable us to get there. And for that grace, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.